The following is our extended conversation with Andrew Otten and Dr. Samuel Otten on the theme of discourse. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. Andrew Otten is a middle school math teacher in Michigan. His brother, Dr. Samuel Otten, is an associate professor of mathematics education at the University of Missouri. Welcome. I, I can't tell you how excited we are. This is this is new. Well, I guess everything's new to our podcast, right, John? But this is <laughs> brand new. We've got four of us on the, the same call. And two of those people, as you can see from their names, are brothers. And they're also former Grand Valley students. So um, why don't we take a moment and introduce yourself, gentlemen. Sam, why don't you start? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I'm Sam Otten. Yeah, I graduated from Grand Valley uh, with these two gentlemen as some of my professors uh, in 2006. Then I went to Michigan State University for six years of various kinds of graduate school experiences. And then since 2012, so for over a decade now, I've been a math ed professor here at the University of Missouri, and I host the Math Ed Podcast, and Dave and John have been guests on that podcast. Uh, Andrew, I haven't had you on there yet. I'm going to start here. This I want to really have my premiere on this one, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm the uh, Andrew Otten. I also went to Grand Valley. I had Dave as a professor, multiple classes. I don't know if I actually had John, Mr. Golden as a professor, at least one, I think one class. Yeah. But I, we worked together making a math competition and definitely worked together. Went to Grand Valley, graduated, got a job at Northview Public Schools, and I've been teaching there for now eight years. Been in Grand Rapids since 2010 and love it. So, Andrew, have you had a chance to watch Ted Lasso? Negative. I have heard good things about it for more than a little while. The only thing I know, honestly, is that he was a football coach and now a soccer coach. I'm not sure if he got fired or what happened. And honestly, most of my knowledge is about like from memes. It comes from like stuff I've seen with using his face. And I'm like, okay. That must be a joke that I don't get, but like, it's funny. So that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a requirement to be either on the podcast or have this conversation, trying to focus on lessons from that he has, but we want to talk to, to people who seem to be doing those sorts of things. So how about you, Sam? Have you had a chance to watch Ted Lasso? Well, I'm kind of surprised, but yes, I have. I've seen more than the other guests on this episode, <laughs> but I've actually... <laughs> I saw the commercial that it was based on, the NBC Sports commercial, and then I was at a family member's, and he, that family member had Apple Plus TV, and I knew I wanted to watch it, so I watched three or four episodes while I was visiting there, and I really enjoyed it. I liked the style of the show, the tone. I thought it was a really cool look at sports and a different a different angle at sports that's like kind of coming at it from a different angle than like Friday Night Lights and all the intensity and breaking down some of the masculinity and things that you kind of assume in sports. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. I am hoping to watch more of it, but um, I'm not willing to pay uh, for Apple Plus TV to do so. So I'm I'm waiting to use that free month. If they're still doing that, maybe I can time that just right. You time it for the start of season three. And then try to just catch the whole thing up. And that is the nice thing. They're they're fairly compact and easy to watch so that you could probably, it's one of those things that you probably could stream in a very short period of time. So our, our theme for this episode is discourse. So in the, the 
little bit that you've seen, Sam, where do you or where did you see discourse in those those episodes that you had a chance to watch? Yeah, I can definitely see discourse as a theme in the show because it comes up in a few different ways. Like I mentioned, the sort of different approach to coaching. A lot of times there might be this assumption that coaching is about strategy and it's about really knowing the game. And it's also about sort of the physicality and the workouts and all that stuff. Um, but to me, from what I saw of Ted Lasso, he really views the personal relationships as an important part of coaching. Um, and he sort of is attuned to how people are feeling and he realizes, oh, we might need to connect and we might need to talk through something to work this out. And, you know, it seems to me like that might become, you can fill in more, but it might become more a big part of the show where the talking is actually part of the coaching. And it's not just talking through the rules of soccer and the rules of, you know, football uh, in uh, international football. Um, but it's also talking to build the relationships and that we need to have these relationships and this trust and we need to understand each other if we're going to be an effective unit, if we're going to you know, be an effective group. That to me seems like kind of taking the discourse and making it central to coaching, not just like what's on the field or on the pitch. So in terms of building relationship, one of the things that Ted does is he asks lots of questions, right? And he tries to get to know the people that he works with. And so we try to do the same thing of our guests. Our, our first question, uh, it's not necessarily one that he asks, but it's certainly one that comes up a lot in the show is coffee or tea. So Sam, are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? I would have to go with tea. When I went to college, I was afraid that I might become a coffee drinker. And I just see a lot of the world is addicted to this drug that is infused in their drink. And I managed to make it all the way through Grand Valley without ever starting to drink coffee. And since I've made it through that college experience, I figured I can just make it as, as long as I want. So I still have not become a coffee drinker. But tea is is interesting, different flavors, different parts of the world. Um, so I would have to go with the tea side of things. How about you, Andrew? Coffee or tea? Yes, I'm definitely in the similar boat. I don't really drink either. I, if I had to pick one, I almost always would pick coffee between the two. I just don't have tea around the house or none of my, you know, generally it's not available. So if I ever pick one, I would do coffee just because it's it's there or, you know, it's on the way. But almost never drink either one very often. Usually water is my my go-to. But I don't know. I never thought of the addictive part of it, I guess. Like, I always just thought of it as like, <laughs> I don't need it. I don't want it. You never, of, you, know? you never thought of. You never thought. I mean, I guess I thought of it, but I've never thought of that, that as being makes the it reason not to. <laughs> okay, well, Andrew, maybe we should ask you, and then uh, flat water or sparkling water. Nice. Ooh, fl- I actually like flat water way better. I don't know why. I actually love it way better. Yeah. How about you, John? Where do you come on this debate? Oh well, I was a longtime tea drinker who then got super, super addicted to coffee, and um, I've stopped drinking caffeinated coffee. But I tell you, the rare occasion I'll indulge, it's hello, old friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I, much like Sam, avoided coffee for a long, long time. I've tried to avoid that. And then uh, something our listeners should know is Sam, Andrew, and I are all from the Upper Peninsula. I spent one summer while I was teaching, though, up in the Upper Peninsula as a, a summer camp director. And during that time, it was cold and I had to wake up early and the kids had kept me up late and I succumbed to um, drinking coffee. And, and the thing was, it was terrible coffee, right? It was, you know, the camp coffee. coffee. It was camp coffee, but it was and, and I, I have been hooked ever since. So I was wondering how that was going to come up. 
<laughs> you cannot talk. You cannot talk to multiple people from the UP without it coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so Andrew, maybe you could tell us, kind of, what does the discourse look like in your classroom? Uh, so I have about two years ago changed my room to be in pods of four instead of facing the front board, trying to cause more like natural discourse. And I start almost every day with some type of discourse about not math, uh, just to like get them started talking. Cause I feel like if it's about math, about half the kids are already going to be checked out. So every Monday or, you know, Wednesday or Friday, it's usually something about like either favorite ice cream or what'd you watch last night or what movie did you do over the watch over the weekend? It's usually very easy to make it approachable. So that's kind of what I started doing a couple of years ago. And they're all facing each other. The biggest thing is having them face each other um, instead of me. So they feel like they naturally have to talk to them, you know, because you're looking right at them. It's almost awkward not to say something, at least hello or something like that. So, so I think the desk is, is the biggest thing that I have in my room that is a purposeful positioning for discourse and then getting them to talk about something not math related at first. All right. And Sam, so Andrew talked about his teaching context and you mentioned Mizzou, but do you want to describe kind of who's in your classroom and then what is discourse look like there? Yeah, I teach year to year. I teach undergraduates, but also master's teachers and also some doctoral students. And then my research is actually still in middle and high schools. So that's where I do my traveling kind of every few weeks out in some sort of school. But whether I'm teaching it or whether I'm kind of looking for it in the classroom, what I'm really looking for is kind of this attitude where the pace is a little bit of a slower pace to allow kind of, Andrew was talking about making the space conducive to conversation and give, giving room for that to come out. I think also the pace needs to be conducive for conversation to come out where we're not we're not rushing through something that's pre-planned. We actually have these moments where we want to just let things bubble up from the room. We want to actually pause and hear what other people's perspectives on it. And I feel like if the pace is too quick, students get the message that like, nope, we should kind of just button down, quiet, quiet up and let it sort of flow through. So I look for that pace where like, does this pace seem to let the discourse happen. And maybe that's what Andrew is doing with that first move of saying like, hey, I actually want you to talk. We're actually going to make time. And this is intentional that your voices should come in. So it's also sending a pace cue. So I look for that. I also look for the teacher having this mindset of being interested in like what the students actually might say. So it's asking a question that might have interesting answers or they might have different answers. And also the teacher with body language or with, you know, reactions or whatever it might be, the teacher to me kind of sets that tone of I'm legitimately interested in what you might say and what you might say and what you might say in response to that. And so the pace and that sort of body language are to me like these signals. And then it's not like the discourse is great all the time, but I feel like if you have those things, it's around the corner, right around the corner, there's going to be some interesting ideas that come up or an interesting discussion that kind of comes up. Yeah. So uh, those are interesting things that kind of contribute, things you're doing to set the conditions for for discourse. Andrew, as you then move from some of these non-mathematical conversations, are there any things you do to start mathematical discourse? Yeah. I mean, you want to keep it very open entry points, I guess would be the term I'd use. Like post a question that there's almost no wrong answer to. Sometimes I'll even whisper to the kid who always pops their hand up. There's always one of those in every classroom who always is willing to share. Sometimes I even tell them as they come in, like, hey, why don't you just take today off and like, just listen. You almost have to do that intentionally because they're going to always be wanting to share, which is fine. I've done that a few times, but just giving them something that there's no way that's the wrong answer. And you almost right away get people sharing, even if it's just something minor. So I'm trying to think of an example, but like, 
Um, I've done notice and wonders. I don't know if you guys heard it, but just like you put a picture up and it's going to relate somehow to the lesson, but it literally is just a picture and you say, all right, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And you force people to, to talk, you basically say, there's no way you can't answer that question. They almost feel dumb if they don't say something like, cause the question's so simple. So I just make sure the questions that are now that they're math related, they're just super simple to, to at least try. So in I a think- situation like that, where you pose a notice and wonder, are they talking whole class or are they talking to each other first and then to you? Yeah, within their tables. So, um, and I don't even actively say that anymore. It's more of just, they naturally have this table that they start talking to. And then it depends. Sometimes I pick people at random where I say, all right, your table's got to share something. What did your table talk about? And one thing I love is that I'll, I'll point at a table. I won't point at a person. So I'll say, okay, this table, who, what did you talk about? And if they don't want to, sh- what did your table talk about? So it, it's very much not their answer. It's our answer. So it kind of keeps it from being personal, you know, in case they feel like it's a dumb answer or something like that. It's not, it's our whole group is represented by it. So mm-hmm. Sam, you wrote an article with some colleagues about teacher discourse moves, supporting productive and powerful discourse. What are you mm-hmm. hearing in what Andrew's talking about that you might point to that others of us could try? And are there other things that we ought to consider as we're trying to promote discourse and teachers promote discourse in their classroom? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I worked for several years at Michigan State with a, well, actually a group of various universities, but Beth Herbalizeman, Michelle Cirillo, Mike Steele, and then a team of us, we were working on discourse moves that teachers could use in middle school and high school. Um, And Andrew's kind of connecting to some of them, but we were inspired by Project Challenge, which is like Chapin and O'Connor from the Boston area, because they worked with elementary teachers and they tried to just work in their math lessons at the elementary level. And they tried to give the teachers some tools to get more math talk happening. And then, and this was in one of the, you know, under-resourced kind of low SES schools in the Boston area. And then they were very pleasantly surprised to find that the math scores really rose based on, you know, they were, they attributed it to this math talk PD that was kind of district wide. Their math scores really jumped up um, and it was impressive. But what also surprised them was like their, their English language arts scores and literacy scores also went up. And that wasn't even part of the PD. That was just like a happy sort of accident. So we were inspired by that and we tried to work in the secondary level about how we can get some of those same discourse moves happening. And so this project, we talked about um, some of the things Andrew's saying where you can have um, students talk to each other and then share out. You can also kind of cue them that you're going to be doing this to like let them know, I wanna hear from you or, or you can share out. It doesn't have to be you individually, but you're from your group. And then in that project, we also talked about other moves like asking students to revoice one another. So if a student brings out an interesting idea, just throw it, throw it to another part of the room and say, can you kind of revoice what you heard or respond to it? Teacher can also revoice. We had moves like explicitly asking students to connect ideas. So if you start having ideas come out, take a little moment to maybe put them on the board and then ask for further discourse where now I want you to talk about what's the connection between these ideas that have been coming out. So it's almost like a little bit of a meta level discourse. Once you start to get some things shared, then there's a lot of things as a teacher, you can you can play off of that or you can do moves off of those. It's also kind of fun. And usually the teachers, once they start to get that discourse happening, they start to get students sharing ideas and then responding to each other's ideas. Teachers often report that they have more fun on those days or they feel more energized when that happens versus like if they had to do all the work and all the talking and they kind of feel depleted by the end of the end of the day, you know, verify that as a teacher for that Sam just said is way more, I think more fun when you, when they're actually involved, it's way more fun. Sometimes it's stuff to get them going, but if you can, it's, it's a ton of fun flies by. Yeah. Does that connect to Ted Lasso? You Ted Lasso fans. One of the examples we gave in an earlier episode was 
where end of season one, where they don't feel like they have a chance of winning, right? And the owner, uh, Rebecca, reminds Ted that sort of his superpower is that he doesn't know anything, right? So he can come to the the, the match, surprising them with new different approaches. They'll do what's unexpected, but he doesn't necessarily then come out and tell the, the players what to do. He asks them, what should we do, right? And again, it's, it's fair to say that in that moment, there's lots of energy in the room as the, the players are sharing the different trick plays. What are they called? Elaborate set pieces? Is that it? <laughs> Elaborate set pieces. They're much more, it's, it's a much different sort of feel, right? And so I appreciate um, both you bringing it up. There is, and I think John and I, I would say the same thing in my, my own classroom, right? There's a whole lot more energy when students are talking than when I'm talking. So Andrew, let's start with you. What do you see students doing during discourse? So while they're discourse, I'd say, yeah, I mean, leaning in definitely. Um, it, ideally, they're not even thinking about putting a hand up. They're just basically, if they think of something, they share, they feel open to share. If you can get it right, the other kids, if you share something, they're not going to make fun of it. They're at least going to listen to it and be like, you know, I disagree for this reason. It's not like a, not like a teasing situation. You know, that's start of the year. That's usually what it is, is, is students kind of like, that's a dumb answer. And then by the later on, they start getting better about just listening. So yeah, definitely leaning in, um, interrupting each other is going to happen naturally. So actually I'm okay with that as long as it's done respectfully, obviously like realize it and apologize and let them finish. But then yeah, it's good that you're interrupting because you want to share so much. So I'd, I'd say interruptions and leaning in uh, are probably the most common things that I look for that I'm actually happy with. Yeah. Hopefully on topic, but even if it's a little bit off topic, I'm usually okay with that too. Sam, what about you? What are you seeing either in your own classroom or in teachers' classrooms? Again, I'm going to bring up an article you wrote about students actively listening, a foundation for productive discourse in mathematics mm -hmm. classroom that we'll link to in our show notes, but that might provide some framework for, for this part of the discussion. I would hope to see the students listening to each other. So they're they're actually tuning in because they're curious what their peers are saying. But also, a lot of times they have something they want to say. So if you really get the discourse going, then there's usually more ideas than there's even than can even come out onto the floor. That's why you might have interruptions and stuff like that. So one thing that I see, and this also goes for college classes when the discourse is really happening, is that people have ideas that they want to share and they maybe don't fit it in into the live discussion, but they email it after class or they bring it up the next week or the next class period. They say, hey, this was still on my mind. So to me, what I kind of see if the discourse is really happening is you sort of see that it takes a life even beyond the bell, you know, like even later that night or the next day, it's still on their mind. And probably there's good lectures, you know, that do that as well. Like somebody's still thinking about it that night or the next day. But I feel like when it's discussions, it's more likely that it actually is still alive for the person and it's still like staying with them even, even after the class because it was something that they were in that was kind of more dynamic because it had multiple voices like in the discussion. What are some of the barriers that you see kind of that inhibit students from entering into discourse? Um, let's start with Andrew, maybe. One is just feeling unsafe in the classroom. Like that's by far the biggest. Uh, and I teach in middle school, so they're always worried about what's going to be remembered or whatever, saying something dumb. So that's a big part of it. That's probably, the big, for me, that's probably the biggest usually I make them defend themselves and they get better at that. So they're not too worried about like their answer being dumb because they can usually defend it with at least something, even if it's just a gut, they can even just say it's a gut feeling. Like I allow that as a possible answer, obviously, 
you know, at the beginning. So they're allowed to kind of have an, an easy reasoning, but uh, I think just not wanting to share because they know someone else is going to make fun of them or the smart kid is going to make fun of them. So kind of getting that out of their head is by far the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Andrew, I know that it's come up in a lot of the other uh, discussions we have when we talk about hurdles. Time seems to be a, a one that comes up a lot. How do you make time for discourse? If you feel like that's that's easy or have you had to be intentional about that as well? Yes. So I, about two years ago, we kind of redid our, we call them priority standards at our district. So instead of having like all this curriculum we have to get through each day, we basically have of this unit for the next four weeks, we have three like main targets that we have to get covered. So really it cuts down on that completely. I can easily cut out a lesson if it's not a main target without feeling particularly guilty about it or anything like that. So to me, the time I pretty much have like a one target per week that I focus on. So if something goes out for a day, we kind of do a little bit extra discussion for half an hour. It does not, that doesn't bother me at all anymore. Um, but I think having that type of planning in your head is a different way that most teachers probably don't usually do it. But just having an idea of like, here's my main focus. It's not about covering this material each day. It's more about this target that I'm trying to cover, you know, whatever it might be. And it's usually a very broad target. So it's, it'll take maybe like two to three days to cover it well, but it's not like it's set in stone what's going on each day. Yeah. Sam, what, what about you? What are you, what do teachers tell you are the barriers for productive discourse? Yeah. One of them is the time that you already kind of talked about. Uh, I really like the idea that Andrew's saying about the priority standards and really kind of simplifying that. I feel like that would help a lot for a lot of teachers. One of it is a, a comfort level that they'll talk about. Like some teachers will just very honestly kind of share that they're not confident in being able to orchestrate all the dynamics that might happen. And it that's true. I mean, it's very kind of challenging and tough to do. And I try it, but it doesn't mean I'm always good at it. So that could just be this thing of a confidence level of a teacher being very confident if they sort of can lead the way and then show how to think about it and how to complete it and give nice explanations. And that might be within a, a strong comfort zone for the teacher. Whereas opening it up and like Andrew was saying, trying to really keep it pretty open, they might not have that same confidence level of, well, what's going to come at me and will I be able to tie it together and where I wanted it to go or will it feel kind of stilted or something? That would be another one. And then I think uh, curriculum materials, like some curriculum materials will have each lesson you can kind of see like, oh, that would be a good discussion topic. Like we could talk about that, get some different answers out, debate it. And then other curriculum materials might be like, nope. It's all written. It's all straightforward. That's that's what you do. That's the next thing you do. Here's some exercises. And so that's a pretty big burden for a teacher. If your curriculum material is basically laid out straightforwardly, not really in a debate-centered way, that's a big ask to sort of say, no, each day or each week, you have to somehow find this big debate moment or this big discussion moment and bring it to life. Like that's You're almost kind of asking them to be a curriculum designer and the implementer and do everything else that they're busy with all day, um, all at the same time. And then you also have the student resistance. Like some students might be like, I'm not going to do all that thinking. That sounds hard. Can't you just tell me, like, you know, tell me what you want. And sometimes maybe you do tell them a little bit, but you try to find some understanding as a community. Like in this community, we do want moments where the students are going to share their ideas or their questions and debate some things back and forth. Andrew, is there... Kind of building off that, is there anything that you feel like built your confidence? Feel free to say Grand Valley if you want, but you know, you don't have to. Was there anything that, uh, seriously, was there anything that um, yeah. you felt like built your confidence to be able to lean into this idea of discourse? Yeah, I will mention my 
um, my awesome master's degree program at Mizzou was very yes. helpful. So thank you for any of my professors that did that. <laughs> yeah, I, you're talking about like just generally like resources or training, like things that have helped me out. You're saying, yeah, I would say part of it is just um, like you don't have to have a amazing example to get kids to talk. You have to find online. Like I've come into a class and I'm just like, all right, how long do you guys think it is from from Lake Michigan to Lake Huron? Like, that's it. Like, you don't have to have like a picture. It can just be a question that kids can somewhat, okay, you know, it took me this many hours to drive from here to here. Can, you know, they can do some basic loose math to kind of get a guess. So like whatever it is, I get them talking and give them a question that they can't, you know, Google super easily, you know, like stuff like that is what I've done before. So I just don't, I, I always just feel like it doesn't have to be a big thing, just something to get them talking. And one time I think I asked them, what was the question? A kid actually wanted to ask it. So I let him because it was kind of cool to have a kid's exam. Oh, it, it was, is water wet? You know, they're just debating that for the first five minutes. It's kind of fun. You know, just anything like that can get them talking. And then once you get them talking, then you'll have them, I think, more more awake and more willing to talk about math. Even if it's lecture, they'll talk more if, if they've started the class talking. So I don't know if I have any specific resources other than just being open to grab anything and go with it. Yeah. Sam, I'm wondering, can you say, I mean, we've been kind of saying productive discourse mm -hmm. um, without really being clear. So is there something, some quality that makes uh, discourse productive or something you look for mm -hmm. for that? Yeah. I mean, I would say getting the kids talking, that that is productive in the sense of setting a tone for the class and, and just valuing their voice. So even if it's something where it was like, as a group, we really got into this debate. And even if there wasn't a clear math point to it, there still might've been a group point to it or there might have been a dynamic you know like we're, we're setting a dynamic and a relationship with each other so that's still worthwhile but then at some point along the way you you would also hope to have some mathematically like oriented discussions the thing that our group looked for at the, the mdis group the um beth herbleisman cirillo and Steele, was we looked for some sort of mathematical objective that even if you didn't achieve it, you at least were having some ideas that were that were brought out around that mathematical objective. Maybe you you've kind of walked around the objective three different ways and you didn't quite get there. That's okay, but that's still productive if there is something you were circling, like there was something that you were starting to approach, and then maybe you'll be able to get there next. But if we if nobody on our team or the teacher themselves, if they couldn't really identify a mathematical point or a mathematical objective that was within the conversation, then we did view that as, as somewhat of a problem because it's like, if we can't tell, and if the teacher can't really tell what this is oriented towards mathematically, then the students also probably are not sure what they're supposed to get out of it. Like what, what are they supposed to remember or take hold of like afterward? As long as there's kind of this topic that you never get too strayed away from. Not that straying is bad, because straying might just mean you're backing up to come at it from another angle. So that's okay. But, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of describe in the abstract. But when we're seeing the discourse happen, as long as we could identify some mathematical target that is never too far out of reach or too far out of focus, then we felt, you know, pretty good about it. Is it fair to say that you're just looking to, that for progress to be, be being made in terms of understanding? Yeah, even if you're just talking through and better understanding the wrong way to do it, that still is a, serves a mathematical purpose because it's like, yes, we understand through conversation, we understand why that was the wrong way to do it. And so even though it didn't get to a quote unquote like answer, 
that still would have been productive because we gained that understanding. And then it might be like, oh, we talked it through, we provided reasoning, we kind of debated it, and we did arrive at an answer that we justified, then then hopefully that conversation also led to like more understanding of that of that thing. So yeah, it's but it's even, it's messy and there's lots of dynamics. And that's part of the part of what happens when you have a discourse rich classroom is it gets a little bit messy, but a lot of times that mess is, you know, a good kind of mess. And hopefully it's including more students' voices that would otherwise be kind of marginalized if it was not discourse rich. Yeah, to me, I would even say the what, one thing I love about productive discourse is those students who, even if they just say the word out loud, parallel lines, like one time, I already feel like it's, it was kind of productive because that student may, during a lecture, would have spent like half asleep or not even, you know what I mean? So even to me, even productive is just them using some of the vocab themselves or, or even just grappling with what does that word even mean? Because I've only seen it written and talked about it. I've never said it or thought about it myself. So to me, even if it doesn't relate to the thing, that to me is at least somewhat productive, obviously not your main goal, but it's productive in the way of they're actually, the students are doing some math in their, in their mind. Yeah. That's nice in terms of, so that it involves a, a particular participation piece. So Andrew brought up the idea of notice and wonder is one, maybe a resource as he was talking about the, the distance from Lake Michigan to, to make Lake Huron. That makes me think about some of the estimation 180 mm -hmm. as a resource. Sam, are there other resources that, that you think of when it comes that can support teachers with this course? Um, well, I will plug MDISC again with Beth Herbalizman. She's kind of the centerpiece of it. And um, we have some articles, we have some resources, we also have some materials that we're pretty happy to share. Having a problem that does have the open-endedness, like Andrew talked about at the beginning, um, open middle has some, grabbing some open-ended problems or open middle problems. Three-act tasks usually are rich enough that you can kind of talk about actually the first act, the second act, and the third act. You can kind of have discourse all along the way. Number talks is, you know, one that has really kind of taken off and having a kind of structure for how we can talk about math ideas and make connections across problems. And I know that's been broadened out to math talks, not just number talks. Those are a few things, but I agree actually with Andrew that it doesn't always take a lot of something really big and fancy to get the discourse happening. It's to me, it's more of that pace, that space and that mindset of showing the interest. And then all of a sudden you can be surprised with, oh, wow, that did become a nice little discussion there. You don't have to wait to have the perfect resource to just try to hear from your students more and then try to build on that once they do start sharing. I'll say one more resource I don't think that uh, we said is which one doesn't belong. If you've seen that, it's kind of, I'm sure people have heard it. It's, it's really good just for discussion. Always more than one correct answer, which I love. There's like an infinite, if you think about it creatively enough. And I always accept every answer as long as you have a reason, even if it's really kind of creative or something. So that's a good one too. Yeah. I'm always amazed with that, how students come up with reasons that even if it's one I've used with different groups of students, they always come up with something new. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing for the profession. And, and it's so great. And I, I'm thankful that um, we've been able to stay connected. And I hope that all goes well for you.